Welcome to Redeemer. Today um, I'm going to be in the second chapter of the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2. I'm in the midst of a series called The Gospel According to Ruth. The Gospel According to Ruth. Ruth chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious day, um, for this reprieve from the heat. We pray, Father, that uh, it helps in the fighting of fires in the east. We thank you for calling us out of the world into your presence, Father. And we have come because we know this is where we ought to be, where we need to be. We are all seekers of grace, Father, and we have come to where we know it can be found. We pray, Father, that you open our hearts and minds this morning, that you work through um, this sermon, through these words, to free us from the bondage of sin, to draw us closer to yourself, and, and to fill our hearts with comfort and hope and joy. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Now, we are looking at the gospel according to Ruth. And what would a survey of the gospel be without a foray, foray, a journey into grace? Without a good look at grace? This week, we are looking at the grace according to Ruth. And the picture that we're given is beautiful. Grace is unmerited favor. That's what the word actually means. Unmerited favor. Favor you did not earn. It's a free gift. It's something we don't deserve, but that we need badly. What we see is Ruth, fresh off the road from Moab, is seeking grace. She's seeking the unmerited favor of strangers. She is unprotected, she is poor, she is needy, and she is out of place in the town of Bethlehem. All of these elements are a stark contrast to how she's treated and what happens to her. God sets her down to walk through the valley of the shadow of death so that his light shines all the brighter in her eyes and in our eyes, the reader. There's some subtle sources of tension that give depth to the story and sets grace in a wonderful contrast to Ruth's difficult circumstances. The first source of tension that we find in Ruth chapter 2 is that Ruth is an unprotected woman. There are echoes here from the end of the book of Judges. This, um, which is all obviously the same time period as the book of Ruth. At the end of the book of Judges, some very violent things happen to a few women. The men are not all virtuous, and, not, and they are certainly not gentlemanly in their conduct. The last two stories in the book of Judges are about a Levite's concubine. That's right, I said it, a Levite's concubine, of all things, that ends very violently. I'm not going to get into that now. There are kids present. The other story that ends the book of Judges, of all things, is, is about the tribe of Benjamin stealing wives. They don't have any more women, and so they pretend to have a party, and they steal all the women. Nice, nice. The people of God seem to be doing very well. So Ruth, Ruth is setting out alone in Israel in a time when men don't do what's right in their when, in a time when men do what's right in their own eyes. And violence against women is somewhat actually the norm at this period. We are clued into this tension when Boaz says in Ruth 2.9, Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He reassures her and tells her that he told his people not to touch her. That seems very strange. Seems very strange. In Ruth 2.22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young men, lest in another field you be assaulted. 
clearly there is some concern for women walking around by themselves. It's a dangerous place to be for Ruth. Even good Boaz is concerned about this amongst his own people. Boaz and Naomi seem worried about physical harm coming to Ruth. We have to keep that in the back of our minds as we proceed through the story. Another source of tension is that Ruth is a Moabite woman. Chapter 2 is framed with this phrase, Ruth the Moabite. It's found in verse 2 and verse 21. This sets Ruth's ethnicity as a focal point of the whole story. Okay, they start with it, and they mention it at the beginning and the end, and so they're trying to draw attention to it. In verse 6, the foreman mentions the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi, as if there were more than one. Right? Ruth is the only one that came back. He could have variously said the young woman who came back with Naomi, but he doesn't do that. He, for some reason, decides to point out that she is from Moab. In verse 10, Ruth herself mentions that she is a foreigner, as if that disqualifies her, actually, from decent treatment. She says, why are you treating me this way? I'm from Moab. Is it that she has heard of how Israelite men treat their women and treat foreigners, for that matter? Either way, Ruth's ethnicity is an issue for people. It's front and center, and her ethnicity feeds into her expectations of how she should be treated. Ruth is a foreign woman in a foreign land. Israel has, up to this point, failed to be an effective witness to any of the nations. Israel has been corrupted by foreign gods and customs more than they have affected the faith and customs of their neighbors. Things seem to be flowing one direction, into Israel. Their influence doesn't seem to be flowing out. Another thing lingering in the back of the story is Naomi's prayer from Ruth 1, 8 through 9, in which she said, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Naomi's faith is weak, and it's battered. Does the Lord hear her? Will the Lord grant her request? Does God hear her prayers? The last curiosity in the background of the story is that Naomi stays home while Ruth goes out to glean. They need as much as they can get. They have nothing. And Naomi is still a middle-aged woman. She's somewhere between the ages of 45 and 55. She can work, right? Those ladies in here between 45 and 55, you know, you can go out and work in a field. It's not beyond you. So why doesn't she go? Why does Naomi stay behind? Is she too overcome with grief? Is she too depressed? Why does she stay back? I don't know, actually. I'm going to tell you that right now. I don't really know why she stays back. But what we're going to see is that God is working on her heart through what's happening, even though she is only mentioned at the beginning and the end of chapter 2. She's still a central character, and God is still teaching her his covenantal faithfulness and how he ministers to her through others throughout this story. So we have all this uncertainty, all this tension, all this brokenness. Ruth and Naomi are in a great need. Will someone show them kindness? This is the question. They are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. What's going to happen? What is God doing? These are women in need of grace. They have returned empty. Are they to remain empty? Does the danger and tension overcome them? This is the tension in the story. What's going to happen? How are God's people going to treat them? Does God leave them as they are? Or does he meet them where they are and fill them? The story of Ruth is about the transforming power of grace. Grace is the context of God's relationship to us as he blesses the meek and exceeds the needs of his children. 
The story of Ruth is about the transforming power of grace. Grace is the context of God's relationship to us as he blesses the meek and exceeds the needs of his children. First, we have to see that Ruth is about grace because God is directing the story. The fact that he is directing the story automatically makes the story about grace. So we have all this tension, all this background. Let's go and see what happens. What happens to Ruth? What happens to Naomi? I said last week that the book of Ruth is a balm to the wounds of providence. In the midst of our circumstances, it's impossible to understand what's going on to us. The book of Ruth has an important narrative device that comforts us in the midst of our circumstances. Reading Ruth should help us with our circumstances. The device is a kind of director's commentary. I don't know about you guys. I like movies. One of my favorite things to do after I've watched a movie a few times is watch it with the director's cut because then you get to hear all the neat stuff that happened, right, who was improvising in the scene, took me three years to write it, that kind of interesting stuff. It gives you all this background. And that's what actually is going on in the book of Ruth. At certain times, we're given details to the story that the characters themselves don't know. If you read too quickly, you miss this part. We know things that Ruth and Naomi don't know. We get to see aspects of the story from the point of view of heaven, from the point of view of heaven. The direct application of this is that there are details to our own stories that we do not know. Right? That's obvious to us, but we easily forget that. We easily forget that. If we did know those details, we'd be as comforted by our own story as we are by Ruth's. These glimpses behind the curtain are brief. They're very brief. They're just a reminder of who is orchestrating everything that is going on. We also get to walk beside the main characters to experience the tensions and development of the story as it, as it unfolds. This gives the text richness and depth that makes the story both highly engaging and very encouraging. So let's look at it. Ruth 2.1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So right out of the gate, we're given a detail that Ruth doesn't know. We are told that there is a male relative. If we are familiar with the law of God, we know he is a candidate to redeem Naomi and Ruth. This law is called the Leverite marriage, which is foreshadowed and explained last week by Naomi back in chapter 1. Someone related to Ruth's husband is expected by law to redeem and restore the widowed Ruth and provide an heir for her husband. The author tells us Boaz is such a person before we even get to meet him. Furthermore, Boaz is a worthy man. That's what it says, worthy man. Now, the Hebrew word translated as worthy carries connotations of wealth, of character, and of social influence. He is a powerful man, is what it's telling us. So poor, empty, lost Ruth has a powerful, godly man who's related to her that could actually redeem her. We're told this right at the beginning of uh, Ruth chapter 2. We are told this and know it as Ruth sets out on her journey. This is something that Ruth doesn't know. It's a detail just for us. There's a good man out there. It's as if God is saying in chapter 1, here's what Ruth needs. Here's what's happened to her. She needs provision and a husband. And in Ruth 2.1, here's the answer. Now, watch what, how I meet the need and resolve the tension. God is showing us what the problem is. He's showing us how he's going to resolve it, pretty much. And then we get to watch how it unfolds. This should be very comforting to us in the midst of our circumstances. God knows already where we're going. He has it figured out. We have a hopeful expectation for Ruth now. Before God sends us out on our journey in life, he knows the destination. God knows where he's taking us. 
The author of Ruth, Ruth gives us this parenthetical statement in 2.1 because this book isn't about Ruth. It's about the reader. You, in the midst of the journey God is leading you on, you get to see there's more to it that if you knew, you wouldn't fear. God provides an answer to our prayers, to our questions. He has a destination already in mind. This is a comforting reality when faced with uncertainty and confusion. God isn't uncertain, and God isn't confused. God continues to show us behind the scenes. In Ruth 2.3, we see, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. It's so funny to me. So funny. So Ruth sets out into the patchwork of fields, not being from around there, and just happens to come into the field of her worthy relative. In the breadbasket that is Bethlehem, how many fields do you think there are? This is where all the grain is grown, a large portion of it anyway. How many fields do you think there are? And she happens to come into the one of her worthy relative. It's hilarious. Imagine that, says the author. What a coincidence. She just happens to land exactly where God wanted her to be. The words can't be taken as meaning impersonal fates or chances are at work on her. It's hyperbole. It's a drastic understatement that emphasizes the exact opposite of what's being said. It's by no means an accident. It is not a coincidence. The point the author is making with a little tongue-in-cheek is a poetical display of the truth found in Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God knew where he was taking Ruth. He knew. Ruth sets out with a plan to find a field and glean, but her choices are working out within a greater story, a play written by a loving God who's directing each moment. He didn't write the play and hand it over to impersonal forces and say good luck with that. He doesn't set her off on a path and get his easy boy chair out and have a drink. Right? God is there with her. That's the point. This is what he's trying to get us to understand. Ruth arrives, begins to work, and lo and behold, who shows up? Who shows up? Who doesn't just remain in the relative comfort of town during the hard work? Who isn't too busy to come out into the fields and to greet his own employees with a blessing? Boaz, the worthy man himself. <gasps> shocking, shocking. I, I just, I'm totally blown away here. Ruth 2.4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. So he happens to come there just after she arrives. He just happens upon it. On your pilgrimage through this world, God is with you because he is leading you to a preordained and glorious destination. I am not saying that God knows where he wants you to end up and lets you navigate this world alone. Look back to Ruth 2.2. Okay, Ruth 2.2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. Favor. That is the Old Testament word right there for grace. It's yesed. It's the word that is usually translated as grace. I wish they would have done that here. It would have made my job a lot easier. But she's looking for favor, right? And grace is unmerited favor. She's looking for grace, and we're going to see that she finds it. And how did she find it? She chose to get up and go glean. She traveled the road. She chose a field. She asked permission. She set to work. While she's making these decisions, who's guiding her? Who is in control of the outcomes? She is seeking favor, and that favor is already with her. 
The favor she's looking for is already with her. Her whole story is conducted in a state of grace. The answer is there before she even asks the question. She could have chosen a field of men with ill intent. She is an unprotected young woman who doesn't know anybody. If Ruth goes missing, is anybody going to listen to old Naomi? Right? If Ruth goes missing, who's going to know? She could have chosen a field where they hate Moabites. Right? They could have stoned her as being just a foreign woman, maybe a spy or something like that. Who knows? Any of these things could have befallen her. She could have chosen field after field that already had its quota of gleaners. But who knew where she was going before she got up? Who is walking with her in the shadow of the valley of death? Ruth is doing the best she can with what she's got. And frankly, to her, it's pretty bleak, just like the rest of us. She's in a predicament that we find ourselves in all the time, doing the best she can with what she's got in a bleak situation. We know info at the outset that if she knew, it would take away all of her anxiety and all of her fear. But God is shaping and molding her. God is shaping and molding her. He's building her faith one step at a time. She's looking for grace, and if you knock, the door will be opened. Seek, and you shall find. Ask, and it will be given. She's asking the right question. Give me grace. And the God of all grace has provided the answer before she even asked. Before she even asked. We get to see beyond the circumstances to see what's really going on for our sake. God is intimately involved in the details of her story. Intimately. He goes before, he follows after, and he walks along with her there. There is hope on the road through life because God is the director of the stage production. He's the best possible director because he wrote the play. He understands every word of the play, all the props. He gets it. It's all his in his hands. He decided it, and now he's conducting it to happen exactly how he wanted and the, the look behind the curtain, the point of the director's commentary all through chapter 2 is to make a one-for-one correlation. God's favor was with her before she sought it. God knew her destination. God led her. This must mean, therefore, God's favor is already with you. God knows your destination. God is leading you. Psalm thirty-seven twenty-three. 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. The Lord upholds his hand. On the dark road, the one holding your hand to comfort and guide you won't be shaken. He won't let go. He, he won't back down. Trust. Let go. Follow. Put your choices in his hands. Put yourself in his hands. That kind of surrender is only for the meek. It's not for everyone. It's for the lowly. The truly humble, for God blesses the meek. We know from chapter 1 that Ruth has surrendered to God. It's very evident. Where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Your God is my God. She has given herself over to the Lord. She has committed herself to him wholeheartedly. What we see in chapter 2 is further evidence of that. Gleaning is a protection for the poor set down in God's law in Leviticus. It's a gracious custom in which God is providing for the poor by commanding farmers to leave the edges of their fields to be harvested by gleaners. Ruth is learning God's law, right? She sets out to glean. Who told her about gleaning? She's somebody who considers the word of God. She's hungry for it. 
She's already knows something about it. She has learned about this gracious provision for those who can't provide for themselves. The question is, in the days of the judges, when things are a bit iffy, after a famine nonetheless, are God's people going to obey? They've all been hungry for a while now, and now there's all this abundance. Do you think they're going to share in the days of judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes? Things are pretty bleak. But what's so remarkable here isn't that Ruth is learning the law of God, nor that she has committed herself to it. Those things are interesting, but that's not the most interesting thing going on. It's that she reads the law about gleaning as a command to farmers, and she still asks the foreman if she can glean. Ruth 2.7. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She's not presumptuous. She's not demanding. She is seeking favor, and this favor, this grace, is something she knows is more than she deserves. She is meek. This is the very definition of meek. She's going to glean what someone else paid to plant, what someone else weeded, what someone else has fed. She's going to be on someone else's land where she doesn't belong that's not hers. She's receiving charity, and she understands that it's charity and not a right. She understands it's generosity and not a guarantee. She's not demanding, appealing to what God, God's law provides, because she knows it's more than she deserves. She's very, very humble. This is the virtue of meekness. Ruth is seeking grace, and she knows that it's unmerited favor. She knows it's something she doesn't deserve, something she um, is going to come by by the generosity of others. But the law says she gets to glean. So how come she shouldn't expect it? It's a good question, right? They need to obey the word of God, so why shouldn't she expect them to? Because she understands her position before God. She's coming into God's house in the midst of his people. She doesn't have an entitlement outlook. She doesn't have the I got my rights and I know what's coming to me outlook. She knows that she doesn't deserve the generosity and grace set down in the law, because it even is too gracious for her, and she won't presume to tell others what their obligations are. It's not her place. She understands her station and what she really deserves, which is nothing. She understands what the law says, but she knows that, too, is too, too good for her. She's completely humble about her own situation and who she is before a holy God, and so she acts in accordance with that humbled outlook. We live in a culture... Obviously, self-evidently, that certainly isn't grace-seeking. Understanding that grace is unmerited. We live in, in an entitlement, privileged, rights-based society, right? How often do you guys hear that? I got my rights. I got my rights. We are very aware of the law of God and morality when it comes to how we ought to be treated. We're like expert lawyers. We certainly know what our due is. And we're right on top of not getting it. Grace is what we deserve, right? Where's the grace? Think of the person who knows all about loving their neighbor because they're, you're their neighbor and they want to know where the love is. Have you guys ever experienced this? Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. I, certainly, my, I have had neighbors who certainly knew what the law was because they wanted to know how come I wasn't obeying it. This is a subtle and dangerous thing. 
God says be gracious. So what we have developed in modern Christian culture are the grace police, making sure everyone is treating them as graciously as they deserve. I got my rights. I have seen this in our culture. You ask why someone, particular person who's struggling, why are they um, not being faithful in a particular area? I'm being very vague, right? How often have you heard this? Well, my wife, my pastor, my boss, they aren't doing what they're supposed to. So I'm not doing what I'm supposed to. If they did that, I'd do this. If only they would obey, I would obey. They aren't giving me the grace that the law demands that they give me. This is something that I have heard quite a bit. The government, these circumstances, as if any of us deserve something better than what's happening to us. As if any of us deserve anything better than what's happening to us right now. We are very sensitive to what we think we deserve because we know we need grace. But we are seeking it, but are we seeking it with a humble, meek spirit? Or are we going about demanding grace in a totally graceless way? Grace is a free gift, not a guarantee. It's not a right. Think of the prodigal son. His words tell us about true meekness, what real repentance looks like. Luke 15, 18 through 19. He is seeking grace just like Ruth. Remember, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to read that part now. <laughs> okay. Luke 15, 18 through 19. That's what happens when you just stop thinking and start reading. 15, 18 through 19. You guys are all familiar with the prodigal son, right? Yes. Here's what he says. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be, go- to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I am no longer... Now, is he his son? Is he still his son? By any definition of the word, is he still his son? Yes. But does he think he deserves that still? He's seeking grace just like Ruth. He's seeking grace just like Ruth. Not, where's my old room? Right? He doesn't show up at the house and say, hey, I'm back. I'll take my usual place at the table. I'll, I'll take my room over here. Honor me. I'm back. That's not, that's not at all how he approaches his problem. He will ask to be a servant in his father's house, and he knows that that is more than he deserves. He has no presumptions, no self-aggrandizement, no entitlement. He knows what he deserves. He knows where he belongs. He doesn't want his former place of honor. It's too high for him. It's too good for him. He knows himself too well now. Give him a corner in the barn. Give him a hut where the servants work. He wants the lowly place because he realizes in his father's house, it's better there than to be outside. And this is what Ruth knows. Ruth knows it's, it's better to have the low place. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, as long as man is thinking of God as an examiner who has set him a sort of paper to do, or as the opposite party in a sort of bargain, as long as he is thinking of claims and counterclaims between himself and God, he is not yet in the right relation to God. He is misunderstanding what he is and what God is. And he cannot get into the right relation until he has discovered the fact of our bankruptcy, our total and utter bankruptcy. What do we deserve? Don't demand your just desserts. Don't talk about your due and don't expect your rights. God forbid any of us for five seconds were ever to experience what we actually deserve. 
God forbid that the Lord would ever give us our due. Ruth understands grace. She gets that it's undeserved, that it's not to be presumed upon. She puts herself in God's hands. She is seeking grace, fully understanding that she deserves nothing. She is humble. She is meek. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And what is happening to to Ruth? God is pleased with her humility, her emptiness, and is arranging all the characters in this play so that Ruth receives the grace she is seeking. She asks, and God delivers. For she asks humbly and meekly, having thrown off the yoke of her old gods and her old self. She would rather be a beggar in the house of the Lord, and God responds with overwhelming blessing. And we see in microcosm that she receives a great deal more than she set out for, because grace exceeds need. We see a little microcosm right here, a little little story of of the gospel and God's grace. Grace exceeds our need. Boaz. Boaz shows up. What a man Boaz is. There's something very interesting about Boaz. In all of the Old Testament, there is no other character that is such a complete picture of God himself. Think about it. All the others, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, David, etc., they all have some major flaw. Not Boaz. He's the only main male character that doesn't have some glaring deficiency. He is a complete picture of what God is like. Now, I'm not saying that he's God. I'm saying he's very God-like. The most God-like picture I think that we're going to find in the Old Testament. It's Boaz's field that Ruth finds herself in. Boaz is a godly man. Ruth needed protection and provision. Those were her needs. Instead, she's going to get a full display of the character and nature of God himself. She gets far more than she bargained for. Boaz is a sensitive, caring, and compassionate man. He knows his own employees so well that when he shows up, he recognizes the one that doesn't belong. Think about that. He's a very wealthy man. He has all these people working out there, and he comes out there, blesses them, and then automatically sees the one that doesn't belong. That's how well he knows his own people. And because he's such a people person, he wants to know the story. This guy reminds me a little bit of Byron. He meets a new person. He wants the story. What's the deal with her? Now, Next week, we're going to get into exactly what is it about Ruth that draws his attention in the first place, but that's for next week. Is it more than just that she's unknown to him? But I digress. He wants to know the story. So the foreman gives Boaz the story, and it turns out that this strange person who's here in his field is actually the Moabite woman that came back with Naomi that's caused all that buzz. He's heard about this girl. He's heard about her faithfulness. He's heard about her love for Naomi. Ruth is a very humble, faithful, and loving young woman. Boaz honors her godly virtues and provides the favor that she has so desperately been seeking. We see this in verse 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Humble Ruth, of course, is overcome by this outpouring of grace. Why is it that she's suddenly getting all this attention from Boaz? The favor that she sought, she has received. Here it is, provision and protection. It's what she wanted. It's what Boaz has given her. But there's more going on than just that. Boaz seems to understand Ruth's story on a deeper level. 
which demonstrates his sensitivity. He gets what's going on for her on a spiritual level. Ruth 2, 11 through 12 is his response to her. She says, why are you being so kind to me? He tells her, you're a very godly woman. And he uses this very interesting phrase. She's seeking the refuge under the wings of the Lord. Now this comes from the Song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12. The Lord found Israel in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He gets that all of Ruth's story is because she has had a heart change. He gets it. He's referencing this phrase that they use for that. It's like, you're a born-again Christian, is what he's saying to her. He knows. He gets it. He's sensitive to what's actually happening in her life. Ruth is alone, and she finds a sympathetic friend. She doesn't just find provision and protection. She finds someone who understands what's going on with her. God isn't just worried about her stomach. He sends her a man who validates the difficult journey that she is on, who sympathizes with her spiritually, and encourages her, encourages her in her spiritual walk. Like Ruth, Boaz isn't above his station. He speaks to a Gentile woman, something not often seen in the Old Testament, something not often um, most Israelite men would humble themselves to do. But he speaks to her like an equal, like a person. She's, he's not above greeting and conversing with the lowly. And this is, again, why he's such a great picture of Jesus Christ. Boaz, as a benefactor, so far exceeds what Ruth needed. And it's stunning. He personally engages with her. He doesn't, work, he doesn't work or talk to her through the foreman. He descends into Ruth's story. It's not beneath him. Boaz honors her faithfulness to Naomi by being faithful to God's command to allow her to glean. Boaz provides what she needs both physically and spiritually. But Boaz is just getting started. He's just getting warmed up. He honors humility, faithfulness, and faith just like his God does. He doesn't meet needs. He exceeds them. God's love that Boaz seems to know so well, is his standard. He staggers Ruth with an outflow of grace. He invites her to lunch. He gives her the leftovers. He commands his own people to not only just let her glean, but they actually take stocks out of what they have cut and throw it down on the ground for her. He's making sure she gets far more than a typical gleaner would get. Ruth sought grace, and God graciously led her to someone who not only provides the food she needs, he is a caring, sympathetic friend. He understands her journey. God's provision exceeds Ruth's need. He overwhelms her need. What is the God of this land like? Boaz demonstrates it. He shows her. He's personal, he's engaged, he's loving, and he's gracious. We've seen God's character as he leads Ruth on this journey, and we see it mirrored and imitated in Boaz. Grace never just meets needs. It, it exceeds them. Now, one of the reasons I think that God is often, a comparison for God is sometimes the sun. And if you think about the sun, right, it's like what I'm talking about. Have you ever considered how much light we actually need to see? How much light do you actually need to see with, to read with, to drive your car around with? What's the bare minimum for seeing in photosynthesis? I have no idea. I do know, though, that the sun gives us so much light, we have to wear special glasses and special lotions to protect ourselves from it. <laughs> the sun overdoes it. This is what God is like. He overdoes it. 
And so much greater is that blinding light when we come out of the shadows, when we've walked for a while in the shade. The plans of man, man's understanding, our comprehension is only partial. There's a director we can't see, directing our steps, guiding our feet into the way of peace. And peace comes at the end of war. God's war against our sins, our selfishness, our self-reliance. God goes to war against us. We saw it in Ruth chapter 1. And we've been humbled. Or once you, you've been humbled, like Ruth, we are content to listen. Right? God gets our attention. Just like last week I said, he roars. Naomi's paying attention. Ruth is paying attention. We saw God go to war against Naomi's self-reliance, and she surrendered. Though she is not yet full, she still lies empty on the field of battle. And in Ruth chapter 2, we see the grace of the gospel. We see the unmerited favor of God. Ruth two seventeen through 20. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Ruth comes in with what is actually 30 pounds of grain which is quite a bit more than the average gleaner would come home with. She also has a doggy bag from lunch. (laughs) She went away empty, and she comes back overflowing. And that overflow gushes over to Naomi, who for the first time in this entire story, in verse 20, shows the thing that gives life to the spiritually dead. Hope. For the first time, we see that Naomi has hope. Friendless and uncertain where their next meal would come from. Naomi is given reason to hope. They have a redeemer. God wasn't satisfied with filling Naomi's belly. He he fills her mouth with praise and her mind with possibility. God is working on Naomi's heart with grace extended through others. The path of life is full of joy, full of reasons to rejoice. She's so pleased with all this food that comes back. And there is somebody who fulfilled the first half of their need. Is it possible he could fulfill the other half? He's given us all this food. He too could redeem us. Suddenly, Naomi is concerned with what's possible, not with just what she's lost, not with just how empty she is. At the end of chapter 1, she's empty and a little bitter. At the end of chapter 2, suddenly she is praising Ruth, she's praising Boaz, and she, anything is possible now. Somebody might actually redeem us. We may have come back to the land of Bethlehem not to die, but to be reborn, to be made new, to be resurrected. God is working on Naomi's heart with grace extended through others. The path of life, the path that she chose back in chapter 1, she is seeing is full of joy and pleasure and rejoicing. There is a reason to keep going. There are reasons to hope in what's coming. Because God is directing her, your steps, Naomi, and you. God is directing our steps. He knows where we're going. There's a reason to have hope. 
That's what we need most, isn't it? Hope. That all of this isn't in vain. That there is some purpose to our suffering, to our coming and going. But in the midst of tears and uncertainty and pain, it's hard to envision what God is doing. This is my point all along. It's hard. What is he doing? Why is he doing these things to us? St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We see only dimly. But the book of Ruth teaches us that there are details we don't know. There are things going on bigger than what we can envision that make all the difference. God gives us hope. This is what he's doing through the book of Ruth. He's trying to give us hope. He gives us his promises and shows us in his word, right? We know the promises of God, and he's showing us in his word how he's always fulfilled those promises. What are the promises? What are some of the promises? First, we see that God promises to sovereignly direct all things for our good, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Ruth found herself in the field of her worthy relative. She was in a hostile land without friends, and God guided her every step toward abundant blessing. God is directing your story. He wrote it. It's in his hands. God dwells with the meek, lowly, and contrite heart. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the, Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, says the Lord, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Those who seek grace find it. Ruth was meek and the blessed, and God blesses the meek. He fills them. He takes the meek and the lowly and the empty and he fills them. Empty yourself through repentance and God will dwell with you. It's, he's not, you're not beneath him. You're not beneath him. He's entered into the story. He's concerned with what's going on. He resists the proud, though. Don't presume. You need his grace, and he will give it. Knock, and he will answer. Ask, and it will be given. Lastly, God promises that his grace is sufficient. 2 Corinthians twelve nine. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's unmerited favor is more than we need. It's more than we need. It exceeds our need. And how so? What's the application for us? What was your fundamental need in all of life? You were separate from God. You were astray from God. You were going down the wrong path just like Naomi. And what, are, what have we seen? God so loved the world he gave. And he gives and he gives and he gives. And he doesn't get tired. He doesn't run out. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also in him graciously give us all things? We know what he's done already. And it should fill us, even though, even in uncertainty, even in doubt, even when we're not clear as to what's happening, it should fill us with hope. Look at what he's already done. What won't he do? What can't he do? Remember the promises of God and take heart. Have hope. Look at everything he did for lowly Ruth and hardened Naomi and have hope. 
Put your faith in him and his grace will lead you through. And amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the book of Ruth that helps us to understand our own circumstances. Father, we are filled often with doubt, with pain, with uncertainty, with confusion. And we know that you are a God of knowledge, all knowledge. In our weakness, we know you're a God of all power. We know that you are writing the story and that you are directing the story and that you are walking there with us every step of the way. We pray, Father, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to grasp this truth, that you are with us and that we will not be overcome in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.